three, two, one. In-depth creative. All right, sorry. Mm. Audio first, storytelling. <laughs> in the Jakarta District Court in 1998, an aggrieved businessman named Jayadi Jaya brought a lawsuit against multiple parties, but a specific one was against a company called Indofood Success Makmur. Does that company sound familiar to you? Indofood is the company that produces Indomie today, the icon of Indonesia's instant noodles, famous all around the world. It was owned by one of Suharto's top cronies, Lim Su Leong, aka Sudono Salim. With the fall of the new order, Saya memutuskan untuk menyatakan berhenti dari jabatan saya sebagai President Suharto's cronyism was exposed. Salim also owned and operated Bogasari, which was the country's first and single most powerful flour mill. Bogasari became a cash cow for the president's inner circles and even the military. The case that Jayadi Jaya brought was one of the rare cases where he publicly shared his grievances about Indomie and continued to do so for almost the next eight years. From the Jakarta District Court, all the way to the Supreme Court of Indonesia. So why did Jayadi Jaya sue Indofood? What was his side of the story when it came to Indomie instant noodles? In part two of the making of a national food culture, we'll trace the story of Indomie, the brand that made instant noodles a part of Indonesia's national food culture and lifestyle. And the unsung creator that Indonesian history should recognize. This is Tanita, and you are listening to Indonesia In-Depth. Before we continue, we just want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by In-Depth Creative, Indonesia's first independent podcast production company that produces immersive audio stories and thoughtful essays in English and in Bahasa Indonesia. We partner with brands and creators who want to meaningfully engage their audience through audio-first storytelling. In part one of the making of a national food culture, we arrived at a point where the government in the early 1970s was trying to diversify the national diet. Wheat flour was one of the products that was promoted most as an alternative to rice, given that the government received a lot of wheat through American aid programs. And one of the most popular wheat-based foods was instant noodles. Super me, super me, oh, 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 super me, super me. Remember him? That's Heru Laksana, a third-generation owner of one of the oldest bakeries in Jakarta, Maison Wiener. In 1969, Super Me was the first instant noodles manufactured in Indonesia. And, as you heard in our previous episode, it was a success. I can eat Super Me for breakfast every day. In no time, Super Me became the generic name for instant noodles. 
Until the late 80s, many people would say, I would like to buy some Super Me, please. Some Super Me brand or something like that. They don't even call it instant noodle. A year after Super Me was launched, another player came into the instant noodle market. It was a company in Sumatra called Sanmaru Food Manufacturing. The name of the product? Indomie. Indomie was created by a Chinese-Indonesian businessman from Medan named Jayadi Jaya. We weren't able to nail down how much market reach Indomie had at the time, but Jayadi Jaya was the first to invent dry instant noodles in 1982. It was the Indonesian-style fried noodles variant, or known as Indomie Goreng. Indomie Goreng became a massive success at the time, and even until today. But hold on a second. We don't really hear Jayadi Jaya's name referred to by the media as the man behind Indomie, do we? Well, there's a pretty fascinating reason for that. And it has a lot to do with flour. Hey, do you know how instant noodles are made? Well, long story short, you take wheat flour and knead it together with water and salt. Then, you steam or fry the dough before packaging them with a sachet of powdered seasoning. It's a seemingly simple process if you already have the wheat flour. But if not, then you need to get the wheat and then mill it into flour. But back then, entering the 1970s, Indonesia didn't have its own flour milling facilities. So the wheat had to be milled in Singapore. And eventually this became a problem, since some of the flour that arrived in Indonesia was often spoiled due to the shipping and storing. At the same time, Suharto also had great ambitions to industrialize Indonesia. So, in 1969, the groundwork for Indonesia's first wheat milling facility began. They called it Bogasari, the essence of food. The Bogasari Strategic Business Group operates two flour mills in Indonesia, which are among the largest integrated flour mill installations in the world. One of the main people entrusted to run and develop Bogasari was Suharto's close friend and trusted business partner, Lim Sulyong, aka Sudono Salim. There are many different narratives about how Bogasari was established. Richard Borsuk and Nancy Chung wrote about this in their 2014 book. Lim Su Leong's Salim Group, the business pillar of Suharto's Indonesia. So one version is where Salim pointed out to President Suharto one day, you know, like likely just in passing, that the wheat flour that is entering Indonesia 
was already spoiled. So, hey, maybe we should just mill the wheat ourselves. On the other hand, Suharto's version of how Bogazari was created was that Salim approached him and asked what he could do for the country. To which Suharto replied, Kamu jangan dagang saja, tapi kembangkan You just don't do trading to get a profit, but you also develop the industry that people require. What's an example? Food. We are producing some, but there are other food staples that are also needed. He also told Salim that Alright then, it's good if you can set up a wheat flour facility because the government has assistance credits from America for buying wheat. But you only process the wheat. The rain stay with bullock. No matter which version you believe in, it was pretty clear that Bogasari was basically a government project, a Suharto project to be exact. Since its inception, Bogasari has been heavily subsidized by the government and was given a monopoly on the milling of wheat flour by the state's logistic agency, or Bulog. And that's huge. Salim technically didn't import the wheat. It was Bulag had a monopoly to do it, but everybody knew it was Salim doing it for them and you know, just taking a, a fee for it. That's once again Richard Borsak, the author of a fascinating book titled Lim Sul Yong's Salim Group, the business pillar of Suharto's Indonesia. You should absolutely read his book, by the way. Going back to the story, Bogasari's power and monopoly was secured institutionally. In the Suharto days, the state's logistic agency, or Bulag, was given a powerful role in the monopoly of wheat imports and also control over its price. So everyone else was banned from importing flour except Bogasari, as it was the government's appointed miller of the wheat aid and received it at virtually no cost. So Bogasari became a formidable giant. So as Bogasari dominated the market, bakeries and noodle producers all bought their wheat flour from Salim's mill. And one of the noodle producers was Jayadi Jaya's Indomie. The critical juncture of this story takes place in the late 1970s, when Indonesia found itself in crisis. Crops were failing, people were starving, there wasn't enough rice to feed the military and civil servants, let alone the general public. Civil servants and soldiers got paid partially in rice, and that meant Suharto was worried that uh, there simply wasn't going to be enough food. 
Remember Mak Jung? She recalled the days of famine in the 1970s in East Nusa Tenggara. They were almost dead. What can they eat? It's true, the 60s and 70s were hard times. President Suharto was in a tough spot. He was forced to come up with alternatives to rice, once again. He decided this time that flour-based food, like bread and noodles, should not only be introduced to the national diet, but that it should be campaigned aggressively. And who did Suharto ask for help to provide all this food? I think you can tell where I'm going here. Yep, he asked for Salim's help. And it's at a stage where Lim is now much more trusted than he was initially as a go-to guy to solve problems. Suharto, and he thought, hmm, we may have a serious problem with food, so let's see, you know, bring in more of the wheat and mill it into flour, and if Salim could join the uh, get into production itself. And so Salim entered into the business of instant noodles. In 1980, under the company Sarimi Asli Jaya, Salim created the brand Sarimi, the essence of noodles. All right, so let's recap a little bit. By the early 1980s, there were three instant noodle producers in Indonesia. Supermi by Lima Satu Sankyu, which was the first instant noodles in the country. Then, we had Indomie by Sanmaru Food Manufacturing, which belongs to Jayadi Jaya. And then, nine years after Supermi, Salim came out with his own noodles called Sarimi. Things really only changed when, as you mentioned many years later, Salim came into the business, which was rooted in Suharto asking them to, could they make noodles or the army because it was a period when Indonesia was rice supplies were very tight. Yes, his goal was to supply food alternatives for the military and civil servants with the hope that there would be more rice available for the public. Salim went all out on this endeavor. He bought imported production lines capable of producing several billion packets of instant noodles annually. What was important is Anthony Salim, I mean, the son of Lim, who was taking a bigger, bigger role <coughs> running the group. He now had production through uh, machines brought in from Japan that he could make uh, up to two billion packets a year of instant noodles if he had demand for it. Just a few years after Sarimi was out in the market, Indonesia's rice crop yields improved and far exceeding expectations. The military angle or uh, consumption turned out not to be very important. It's what got Salim first started in the business, so in that sense it was important. But that was a, turned out to be a stopgap measure 
until Indonesian rice crops were good again. Yep, in 1984, just when Suharto and Salim was preparing to switch the national diet to eating bread and instant noodles, Indonesia became self-sufficient in rice. Salim went from being asked by the government to feed the entire army and civil servants with instant noodles to not having his noodles needed at all. Now that Salim had made additional orders for all these imported machine lines that could not be cancelled, what would he do with them? He didn't have demand for it at that early stage when the army pulled off. That's when he started talking with the maker of Indomie. As explained in Richard Borsik's book, since Jayadi Jaya's Indomie was one of Salim's flower customers, that's right, Salim approached him to sell the machines he had brought and no longer needed. In the making of his book, Lim Zuliong Salim Group, the business pillar of Suharto's Indonesia, Richard Borsak interviewed Anthony Salim, who is the second eldest son of Sudono Salim. In the interview, Anthony recalled the conversation between Salim and Jayari Jaya at the time. He said, <clears throat> Salim said, Look, you are my customer. And we have these extra production lines. Can you do something about it? Because we don't want to compete with you. From that conversation, it was clear that Salim didn't have any intention to be in the instant noodle business unless the government wanted them. But Jayadi Jaya refused. He didn't need the lines that Salim was selling. This is when Salim initiated aggressive marketing campaigns for Sarimi, cutting prices just below Jayadi Jaya's Indomie. Jayadi Jaya started to feel the pressure from Salim, and he couldn't resist Salim for too long. Are you starting to see where this is going now? That's when he started talking with the, the maker of Indomie, and eventually uh, Salim plants, in effect, uh, the maker of Indomie. They, they come together and then one kind of takes over the other. In 1984, Salim's Sarimi and Jayadi Jaya's Indomie entered into a joint venture partnership. The joint venture was called Indofood Interna. When they first set up the joint venture, Jayadi had 57.5%, Salim only 42.5%. So it looks like Jayadi's number one. I think Jayadi probably realized pretty quickly he can only resist Salim up to a certain point. They're the big guy. They're the president's friend. I maybe better take what money I can, make what money I can from joint venture, but don't assume you'll stay in the driver's seat. The partnership was proven a success. And by 1986, Supermi was acquired by the joint venture. But gradually, the control of Indofood Interna shifted from Jayadi Jaya to Salim.
They need to raise the new money. They have a rights issue. Maybe Jayati is a little strapped and can't put up all the money. Salim says, no problem, we'll cover the balance. And then lo and behold, over time, there's a different driver there. Salim, who wasn't a pioneer of instant noodles in Indonesia and didn't even intend to be in the business, instantly became the man who controlled the top three instant noodle brands, Subarmi, Indomie, and Sarimi. Salim literally conquered Indonesia's instant noodle market. The world's changing, uh, tastes are changing. Uh, you now got uh, middle class coming up in Indonesia, which you didn't have before, who might like a convenience food like this. So there is kind of a convergence of things. But essentially, at one point, Salim takes the ball from Jihadi and runs with it. In 1994, the control of Indofood Interna shifted completely to Salim. Jayadi Jaya was no longer in the picture at Indomie the very brand he created. On the other hand, Indomie sales kept soaring with heavy advertising and intense marketing. Jayadi had a... He had a distribution company called Wechaksana, which was the distributor for all the Indomie uh, products, uh, which was good business in itself. But then when a contract was up, not surprisingly, Salim says, Oh, we, we also have a distribution company. So Jadi lost out. There's no question about it. Again, Salim would say, not through any dirty tricks, uh, just that's business. And I think what happened or, or what was motivating particular efforts to build up Indo B or Salim was that they realized this business could generate a lot of cash. This is how we arrived at the 1998 trial that we mentioned earlier. Tapi Anthony Salim biasanya saya ingatkan Anda, Anda mungkin tahu Indomie? Ya, Indomie. Itu adalah produk yang diproduksi oleh Indofood. Indofood merupakan raksasa mie di Indonesia, bahkan mungkin juga di Asia atau juga dunia. The media today barely remembers Jayadi Jaya, the creator of Indomie, Indomie Goreng, and the original holder of the Indomie brand trademark. Jayadi said that in the 90s, he was forced to do this and that, but he didn't say that in the earlier mid-90s. He only uh, made those charges, those accusations, in court after Suharto is gone. In that case, Jayadi Jaya sued Indofood, Anthony Salim, and the Gang of Four, the most powerful businessmen in the Suharto era, and were involved in Salim's Indofood. He claimed that he was forced to sell his Indomie trademark under duress 
and at an extremely unreasonable price. Because he would have calculated correctly that while Suharto's in power, he had no chance to get any uh, court ruling in his favor. So in 99, Suharto's now gone. Jayadi breaks his uh, silence, as it were, of 15 or more years, depending on when you date it from, and does file a suit in court. So people could see the allegations that I was cheated of this, I was, this was taken from me. I got a grossly unfair settlement for, for the Indomie trademark, 30,000 rupiah, which at the time he came to Salim, it was, I don't know, maybe 15 US dollars at the most. In a 2003 judicial review before the Indonesian Supreme Court, Jayadi Jaya stressed on this point, that the close relationship between Salim and the Suharto regime was the reason why he was forced to sell his trademarks at an unreasonable price. But even in the highest court in the land and a judicial review, Jayadi Jaya lost. After his defeat in the court, Jayadi Jaya never spoke about the issue again in public. It's as if he was never in the picture to begin with. Although we made numerous requests to speak with Jayadi Jaya during the making of this episode, we were informed by his staff that he was unavailable to provide comment. We asked Richard Borsak, would Jayadi Jaya's Indomie brand be as powerful and popular as it is today if Salim wasn't involved? They didn't have the connections. They didn't have the, the linkage that Salim had. I, I think the, the capital was the main issue. Jayadi probably had no choice in a sense, or would have judged he had no choice but to go into a joint venture with Salim, even though he was the one with the who got this uh, brand out there and started, but uh, you need more capital to expand and market and put up new facilities. And uh, Salim had access to capital. One of the greatest needs when Suharto came to power was you had to find sources of private of, of capital, and uh, not many people had capital or access to capital. Lim had access to capital. So Jayadi, who was entrepreneurial and maybe in a very small way successful, he couldn't have become big time success without teaming up with someone with the capital or access to capital. And here comes Lim, who now, after years of not being interested, now says, hmm, maybe there's money to be made in using our flour to go into instant noodles. Indomie, saya selalu ingat ya iklan yang direkam sampai saat ini. Indomie, selera. 
instant noodles. But not just any instant noodles, we're gonna be talking about one of the most delicious and undiscovered kinds. In the only Migoreng fried noodles flavor, ridged crisps. Oh, it smells like an Indomie Migoreng. Oh my This episode is produced by In-Depth Creative. Audio first, storytelling. Producing this episode required an incredible amount of research and numerous interviews with people across Indonesia, as well as experts in Singapore and America. We want to especially thank Richard Borsuk for the work that he has done through his incredibly interesting book, Lim Su Leong's Salim Group, the business pillar of Suhardo's Indonesia. Now we highly recommend this read as it's insightful, relevant, and very helpful when trying to understand Indonesia today. The book is available in both English and Indonesian and is published by Isis Yusof Isak Institute. And we also want to thank William Chandler, who assisted us with interviews and studio equipment in Singapore. And also Kim Lutanoni, who conducted the interviews in East Nusa Tenggara. And finally to Stephen Magera, a veteran of the U.S. Department of Agriculture who provided us with unique insights on Indonesia's agriculture sector throughout the production of this episode. This episode would not have been made possible without their help. Thank you for listening. Thank you.